Welcome to the Gateworld Podcast. Welcome to episode number 153 of the Gateworld Podcast, a show where two nerds talk about all things Stargate. My name is Adam Barnard, and today I'll be joined by special guest host Sarah Kehoe. Sarah is a new contributor at GateWorld.net who is writing a column about Stargate Universe from a newcomer's perspective. And now that she's wrapped up the first season of the show and thus the first half of her column, we're going to have her on over the next two podcast episodes to discuss the first season of Stargate Universe and really dive deep into the characters and storytelling and lore of this uh, short-lived but incredible show. Uh, So Sarah, before we get to some announcements and the main discussion, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Adam. I was really excited to get your invitation. Yeah, I I really enjoyed it. Every few weeks getting one of your your entries was something to look forward to consistently on the site. I I liked the fact that a column had a definitive beginning and and middle and an end as you're working your way through the seasons in the series. So I'm just excited that that you had the idea to do this and and you were willing to come on the show and and, uh, give your verbal thoughts as well as your written ones. Thanks. I had a lot of fun getting to go through and actually jump into a new part of a fandom that I hadn't really experienced before and having an excuse to do it was always preferable. And and we're going to get into that main discussion in a minute, but first I just want to run down a few quick announcements for the website. So Darren Sumner, uh, who you all know as the managing editor of GateWorld.net and the host of the GateWorld podcast, is off this episode, and he may be taking a few uh, future episodes off due to his schedule. So I'm going to be taking the reins temporarily and, and hosting a few shows before he comes back to join me. But don't worry, he's not going anywhere permanently. He will still be around. As I've also mentioned in previous shows, regarding the GateWorld podcast, we'd love to hear what you guys want to hear on the show, what topics you would like to hear us discuss and and tackle, whether it's about an episode or a show or a character or a season or a grander theme of Stargate. We're really looking to hear uh, what kind of content you'd like on the show, specifically given the fact that Stargate has been off air and even at, since Stargate Origins, there's been a bit of a gap in Stargate content. So if you have an idea for a discussion topic or maybe you yourself want to appear on the show, you have a topic you'd like to bring to us and discuss, uh, please go ahead and drop us a line at webmaster at gateworld.net or reach out to us on social media, which is our Twitter or Facebook page. So there are also a few new uh, feature items on the site that we're really excited to share with you guys. First up, we got to publishing our Michael Shanks and Lexa Duig interview from 2018's GateCon The Invasion. Uh, This was a really, really fantastic interview that Darren conducted back at the convention, and I think he was really able to capture Michael and Lexa in a very candid and entertaining state, uh, reflecting on, on their careers, uh, during Stargate and post Stargate and and how they interpreted their characters and, and what they've been interested in and, and what they've been passionate about since the show went off air, uh, since SG-1 went off air. 
Um, they also have a really entertaining, like, old married couple dynamic that was really fun to see. Probably shouldn't use the word old, but still, I thought they were very comfortable and, and homely married couple. And it was just a, a different side. You get to see how different they are from their characters and, and catch up with some familiar faces. So that was uh, that, that's on our YouTube channel in audio form. It's about 19 minutes long. Uh, you can get it on our GateWorld interviews uh, feed on Spotify or iTunes, or you can stream it on our website or direct download it on our website. Or if that's not enough already, you can also read the transcript uh, also on gateworld.net. And last but not least, uh, Sarah Kehoe, who is again joining me today, has wrapped up the first season of her SGU first timer column. Uh, so this is a column where Sarah watches an episode or two of Stargate Universe for the first time and writes down her thoughts and and has a really candid and insightful stream of consciousness dissecting the show and what her initial reactions are seeing this show for the first time. I, did, I, did I get that right, Sarah? Is that a good description? I think that's spot on. So I just before uh, we get into the main discussion, I would love to hear your Stargate story, and even before you got to writing the column and, and how that came about, I'd love just to hear how you were introduced to Stargate and how you took to Stargate SG-1 in Atlantis. Well, I came into Stargate in a very roundabout, unsequential way, for sure. You know, we didn't have Showtime growing up, and my parents aren't particularly nerdy. In that regard, I'm definitely the black sheep of the family. <laughs> so I didn't have a whole lot of sci-fi or fantasy influence growing up really started getting into it in college and you know it being the time period that it was back then the very early 2000s not that I'm old but uh you know I didn't have a DVR or a VCR or anything that let me truly follow a show but I would leave my television on the sci-fi channel all the time and I would catch current episodes of SG-1 and Atlantis, and I would catch reruns of stuff in no particular order whatsoever. I was vaguely aware that Atlantis and SG-1 were related. But the shows, even then, not truly knowing what was going on, they really sucked me in. And it was the characters, the you know modern time frame, still space exploration. You're not years and generations in the future like in Star Trek or Star Wars it's right now and I loved that aspect of it but when I truly like sat down and full-on went Stargate was when I met my now husband and he wanted to introduce me to this show that he really liked and he was really nervous about introducing me to it because it was so old and we sat down and we turned in the movie and that really threw me off because, of course, it's Kurt Russell, it's James Spader. And in my head, it's supposed <laughs> to be, I'm like, wait, it's that guy from MacGyver. And then it's that taller guy with the darker hair. But these are their characters. What's happening? And then straight after that, we finished the movie. And next thing disc we put in, first episode of SG-1, which now suddenly makes so much more sense to me, even though I'd seen it before. I didn't understand the Kleenexes. I didn't understand this human guy coming from a planet that everyone thought he was dead, but turned out he was alive. And with that, we watched all of SG-1, all of Atlantis, all of the movies. I think it took us like a grand total of three months to watch 14 years wow. of television. That's fast. <laughs> it's, it's a little crazy, but it was so much fun. And Stargate just really sparked my imagination. 
I've been a writer since I was really young, um, definitely into fan fiction before I even knew what it was. And I've been writing original stuff in all of this huge time period since high school. And the next thing I knew, I had all these Stargate ideas, which means I had to write, watch the show more because I had to get the canon right. And I had to get through all that. And it was just so much fun to really have something with such a rich history to completely immerse yourself into and completely just kind of bundle up in a cozy blanket with these aliens and stuff I didn't have growing up that now I miss. I wish I'd had this when I was six or seven. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's interesting that you brought up the fan fiction side because Stargate is a very dense canon. It's not something, just just the rules and the lore and whether it's alien races or the functionality of the Stargate or even the history of the greater Stargate universe, uh, the, the, the creative universe, not the, the show Stargate universe. It, it's something that is very multifaceted. And I think what resonated with people, especially as the show or shows went on, was the ability to check in with several sets of stories or characters that were all interlinked with, with a, a greater purpose for sure and it's something that i think because at the time we've now been usurped by a show that shall not be named but at the time it was the longest running consecutive sci-fi show and so you didn't even really have that with the mainstay sci-fi or fantasy you know how far you want to cast the net you didn't have that you only had it with stargate and it gave you that great world to just completely delve into and you know, I may or may not have stayed up till three o'clock in the morning looking up how to specifically say something in Jaffa to make sure <laughs> that I had it right and all the, you know, randomly praised apostrophes were in the right spots and all of that. So it's it sounds like Stargate is something that's very personal to you because it's like a, a bonding experience in a way with with your spouse. And is it something that you've been able to take to conventions or get involved with cosplay or or uh, have you been on the Gate World forum or how did fandom manifest itself once you really started to get into the show or the, the, the series overall? Yeah, the fandom manifested outside of fan fiction, which I yeah, had been doing forever at that point. Definitely have the cosplay. It's the first cosplay I was able to get my husband in on. He was very indulgent of my ideas. And, you know, I have a Kaylee. I have all sorts of different outfits. And he was always cool with it. But the second I said I wanted to make a Stargate cosplay, he immediately was like, I'm in. This is what we're going to do. We're heading to the Army Surplus store. We have to get the right patches. And his costume actually turns out to be much more in depth than mine. Like mine's just straight up some fatigues with the right patches. And of course the boonie Um, and his, he's got the vest and he's decided what ship that he's, you know, a crew member of and the whole nine yards. And so we take that with us to conventions. We have a actually fairly large local convention that happens twice a year down here. And uh, Richard Dean Anderson came last year. And luckily at that point I had met Darren, I had kind of started talking to him about Stargate Universe. The articles hadn't actually started to appear, but I went into the convention with the specific mission of meeting Richard Dean Anderson and getting that, you know, eight and a half seconds of personal, (laughs) personal time with him. And it was probably the nerdiest thing I've ever done in my life, but it's also one of my favorite things I've ever done in my life. That's fantastic. It's it's always 
wild meeting your childhood heroes in person, isn't it? <laughs> Specifically the people who are, are bringing a fictional character to life. Because in some ways there are a lot of similarities, but in other ways they can be completely different from who they portray on screen, even though a character has like has has a life of its own that you've connected with. Yeah, and especially someone like Richard Dean Anderson, who he's established enough that when he goes to take on a new character, he gets to say, oh, no, 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 I'm not doing it that way. Kurt Russell's <laughs> great. Who can get their hair to do that? This is what I'm going to do with this character. And so he's so much like Jack in real life. And there's definitely a little MacGyver in him and a little bit of legendary in there kind of a cheeky swagger but you know those few seconds when you're standing at the table and we actually got a prolonged interaction it's a very convoluted story but he was cracking jokes about how he needs to be losing weight and it doesn't matter whether or not he gets his lunch his doctor would actually prefer it if he didn't eat anyway <laughs> and it was almost like not hanging out with your cool grandpa because definitely you know he's been around for a while but he's like that cool uncle that never got married and you always get excited to get to go see him. That's an amazing analogy. That's that's exactly what I would imagine it would feel like at a conven- at, at a convention because I've never met him but that's that's a perfect description and and you were also able to immortalize your experience in in a write up, correct? And that's that's still on on Gateworld. Yeah, I did get to you know put it together. I have a transcript of the Q&A that we stood in line for for about three hours because we were not going to miss that one. Um, But yeah, I got to put it all together, um, kind of made the experience very personal outside of just getting to meet someone you really admire, but getting to do it with a purpose made it a lot of fun. Absolutely. And so we're going to go ahead and put the link to that in the show notes, uh, whether it's in the YouTube description or on the website itself. Look for uh, Sarah's link to her experience with Richard Dean Anderson at a Stargate convention. So lastly, before we dive into the main discussion, I just wanted to ask you, how did this column come about? Because uh, as you described to me, you saw a lot of SG-1 and Atlantis, but you didn't get to see Stargate Universe. And uh, also, so I wanted to ask you about that and also how the column came about all these years later. So the idea for all of this came about, I never watched Universe frankly, because of the chatter and the fandom in general. I didn't own it on DVD or Blu-ray like we do everything else because my husband wasn't into it when it came out. So I just never thought much of it. I was like, oh, yeah, it's that two-season show that apparently had a really disappointing (laughs) non-ending that, you know, everyone's very split on. Everyone's very divisive over it. So I just kind of let it go. And... Years after all of this is going on, I'm following GateWorld on Twitter, loving the articles, spending obscene hours going through all the transcripts of the episodes. Origins is about to come out. So Darren kind of puts out this call going, I want new content. I want some ideas. I need some some fresh stuff. So I reached out to him on Twitter and said, you know, I can't draw, but I can write. I can put words on a computer screen. And so he had me pitch a couple ideas to him, which actually the um, convention with Richard Dean Anderson was coming up. So that was my first thought was like, that would be something fun to do. And I also really enjoy in podcasts listening to 
people going through weekly watching some of my favorite TV shows. And I've got one for Highlander I listen to. I also have one for Stargate. And I thought, you know, if people like listening to it, maybe people would be interested in someone writing about it. And I wasn't about to try and put together my own podcast on it. So since SGU was the only thing I hadn't watched before, I just kind of almost in a panic trying to come up with ideas for pitches just threw that at him. I've never seen Universe. I could watch that for you. And he liked the idea. He thought it was a fun kind of take on, you know, something that's been around forever. Um, Someone having fresh eyes on an established show who already knew the rest of it. So I'm not coming to the whole thing confused about what's going on. But, you know, I don't know who Rush is and I don't know who Eli is and I have never heard of Icarus Base and all of that and just pushing it through. So I bought the DVDs, sat down in front of my TV and started watching. That's just awesome. I I love that you're going to revisit something that is controversial or does have a very tentative place in in fandom um but what's also interesting about your column is i've seen it give voice to a lot of fan stories who have uh, come back to sgu after all these years despite uh passing on it when it initially aired i mean it's interesting to see consistent comments on youtube twitter facebook gateworld forum saying man you know I, universe didn't resonate with me when it came out or i just decided to skip it all together because <laughs> fandom was very quarrelsome over it just seemed like more trouble than it's worth and you know i'm, I'm a jack o'neill fan or i'm an atlantis fan i just maybe I, I wasn't really interested by another stargate show of that kind of uh tone but I've seen a lot of these people in the absence of Stargate, um, an ongoing absence of Stargate for many years, come back to give SGU a second shot. And what's nice to see is that a, a large percentage of them actually seem to enjoy it without kind of the burden of comparing it to Atlantis or SG-1 or without saying, you know, why didn't we get a movie? We got Universe and said. And so I, I've seen the verdict kind of change on the show a bit and and people be more open to it. And I think the column might even encourage some people to revisit it again. Yeah, I was actually pretty shocked. I did get a number of people replying to Darren's tweets when he's saying, hey, we've got this new column coming out and everyone's going, oh, I never really watched it. I don't know. Should I? Should I? And getting to jump in there and be like, you should watch it with me. This is when I'm watching it. This is what episode I'm watching. This is when I'm going to watch it and kind of pulling that together and a lot of people have reacted positively to the show that I was actually expecting a lot more people to watch and go, Oh, I gave it a try. And I still think it sucks. Yeah. Usually it's people saying I gave it a try and this isn't what I remember, or this isn't what I was expecting, which is what I ran into when I started watching it. And I I think that's actually a really great theme to start the main discussion with. So let's go ahead and discuss the first season of Stargate universe. The main discussion. So once again, the main discussion for this episode is uh, an, an analysis on the first season of Stargate Universe, and this time uh, through the eyes of Stargate Universe newcomer and GateWorld contributor Sarah Kehoe. In past episodes of the podcast, Universe has been discussed at length. Darren Sumner and David Reed were both co-hosting the podcast back in 2009 and 2010 when the show was airing, and they would usually break down every episode a couple days after it aired and also do a couple summary episodes or a a summary episode at the end of a season. But given that so much time has elapsed and given this golden opportunity to bring on a new voice to the podcast like Sarah... 
I thought this would be a, a great time to use her articles as a launching point to discuss uh, how the how we see the season, uh, the first season of Stargate Universe, almost a decade later, which is kind of crazy to say because I vividly remember inviting several friends over for uh, the October 2nd premiere. I still remember the date for the October 2nd premiere of Air Parts 1 and 2, and that was 2009, so that is almost a decade ago that this show came out. I, I cannot believe how fast time has gone by. Yeah, October 2nd, 2009. I was sitting in my apartment probably watching SG-1 on Netflix. <laughs> so at least you, you were you were halfway there. You were still watching Stargate, just not Stargate Universe. Yeah, I didn't have TV back then, so I couldn't watch anything new and exciting. It was all... And that was like Netflix infancy, so there was very few actual shows to sit around and watch. I, I feel old now because I know some kids have grown up with streaming as just being a, a everyday necessity. It's something like, well, how did you watch shows or watch TV without streaming? I mean... And it's kind of like asking how you watch new shows before the age of DVR. Like, oh, my God, did you have to sit down and watch it live? Did you have to make it a date in your calendar and sit down at 10 p.m. and watch a show live? I actually think looking back, a streaming platform would have been very beneficial to SGU because it is something that is largely serialized um, or at least something where if you check out for a week, it's kind of hard to jump back into. I mean, some a more extreme example of that would be a show like 24, which is literally each episode is an hour of a day that is all one giant action extravaganza. And, and Universe isn't quite that serialized or interconnected, but it's once you start getting into it, you still have to deal with commercial breaks. And then, you know, 42 minutes later or an hour long later, you're done and you have to wait a week. And that's something where given the pacing of the first half of season one of Stargate Universe, I think it threw a lot of people off their game and it, and it kind of felt hard to get into the show and stay into the show and wait for so long for it to take off. Whereas if this was available on Netflix, you could just binge watch the first half of the first season in a single night if you wanted to. Yeah. And it's uh, definitely a show that I think benefits from bingeability yeah, it's um, kind of something where you want to sit down, you want to keep going. And I think if I had to wait five, seven days in between each episode and heaven forbid the hiatus where you wait several months for your next episode, <laughs> yeah, it's like four or five months. Yeah, I, I genuinely don't know if I would have liked the show as much as I like it now, being able to just click play all on the you know, DVD player when I start and just sit back and watch it. I want to read a quick quote from your first entry, which covered the three-part premiere of Air. Uh, you say, for the first time I watched the three-part series premiere, I admit I wasn't sure what to expect. I've read the debates on Twitter and Stargate Command, and I think knowing that there was a tonal shift from the Stargates I have seen before prepared me for what otherwise could have been a very jarring jump. Right off the bat, you get a very Battlestar parentheses gate Galactica vibe. Love the reference. <laughs> it's good to be able to laugh about these things. Uh, you got that vibe from all angles. The lighting is much darker than I'm used to. The music is more ominous. It has a very Firefly slash Serenity vibe. And the chaos is palpable. Dot, dot, dot. I dig it. So I thought that was a great way to, to reflect on air and, and raise the theme that that the first few episodes really focuses on chaos. 
I think all p- good pilots have an element of drama or chaos, but with Atlantis, it was very aspirational. It was it was about exploration and and finding Atlantis and and learning about the ancients. And with SG One, Children of the Gods, kind of picked up from where the movie left off, and and you, you had a bit of a rescue mission going on. But this is really just one bad event after the next bad event and and people in peril and chaos without kind of a, a quixotic ending or without something that's very hopeful. Uh, how did that register for you? I, from a storytelling point of view, I thought it was really cool. And I thought it was actually kind of brave because you brought up the Atlantis premiere the the first episode of Atlantis, the build up to Atlantis, you have SG one like squarely, not necessarily in the middle of the story, but they are like right there sitting on the bench in Daniel's Jack's or in Daniel's position, hoping to jump in. Like I'll go get my bags. I'll go right now. So with Universe, you don't even see familiar characters, you know, for a while, much less straight at the beginning, and it's just people flying headfirst through a wormhole that you know well enough to know something is wrong because (laughs) we know how to make this not be happening. But, you know, their gear and there's people and the CO straight off the bat is like head wound injured. So are we going to kill him in the very first episode? What's happening? And it really sucks a viewer in to find out who is this? What's going on? Yeah, and it's it's told non-linearly. I mean, most of Air Part 1 is quick scenes back and forth between uh, the Icarus evacuees and the Destiny and flashbacks as to how they got there. Um, so in a sense, the first episode is very disjointed, but I think, as you mentioned, intentionally so. It, it was brave and it gave purpose. Um, but it's it's not something that's very smooth. All of a sudden, you're in the action. People are getting hurt. It's gory. It's intense. And and for one, the visual language of the show could not be more different than SG One or Atlantis. Yeah, I kept waiting for someone to find the light switch, which is usually <laughs> what happens when you know they walk into a dark place and someone fumbles around for a second, and then the lights come on and you can see what's happening, and the trumpets sound in the background and everyone's happy. And this one was just, no, it's still dark. No one knows where the light switch is. No one knows where the happy music is. Seven people might be dead. And we're not sure what we're going to do now that we made it here to where you find out they're not even supposed to be to begin with. Because Rush, you know, disobeyed the dialing sequence he was given. And he just went for broke, dialed that ninth chevron, and now everyone's screwed. And yeah, it's such a great plant because the first few minutes of the episode uh, shows Rush climbing to the top of of the balcony in the gate room and and presiding over the chaos with an evil Machiavellian grin. And I think for me watching that pilot, I was immediately asking myself, how is that relevant? How did that come about? And I and by the end of the first episode, just the first 45 minutes of air, that's already answered and kind of sets the tone for the character conflict or some of the core character conflict moving forward into the rest of the first season. Yeah, I definitely, in watching air, was very prepared for Rush to be a straight-up villain of the series, to be like grab you know grow out a mustache specifically so he can twirl it while he comes up with his evil plans and one thing universe does as a whole that the other stargates played with 
but never fully committed to, I don't feel like, like Stargate Universe does, is there's not a whole lot of defined bad guy per episode. Certainly. Ultimately, you know, we end up with the Lucian Alliance, and I'm very kind of curious and excited um, at the end of the season to see where that goes. But in the beginning, it's just, well, Rush isn't a straight up good guy, but he's not the bad guy. But then you have Young, who's in charge of everything. And I desperately kept trying to make him an O'Neill or Shepard kind of a character. And at the end of the day, he's just as almost bad as Rush. Like you don't have that. These are my good guys. These are my bad guys. And this is who I'm rooting for. And that's one thing I definitely, once I wrapped my head around that, I was very resistant to it. Honestly, for all of air one, two, and three, I watched it in its like movie format. I was so you saw the extended cut, right? You watched the, with the, with all the extra scenes spliced in there. Yeah, I I went for the the uberest version of the episode <laughs> I could get my hands on because if I was gonna do this, I was gonna do it big. But it definitely took me multiple episodes to come to terms with or rectify, however you want to say it. That there isn't a clearly defined um, a villain antagonist, or yeah, or... Al- almost like there's just not a clearly defined space role of you know even when O'Neill leaves SG One, well you get Mitchell. When yeah. Weir leaves Atlantis, you get Woolsey, you get Carter, and there's specific team roles that everyone fills in that you can um, it, it analogs to one show to the other you can kind of go okay who's o'neill well that's shepherd who's daniel that's taylor who's who's who and all of this and with sgu you don't have any of those people everyone's just brand new they they broke their mold they broke their formula which can be very very dangerous um in established fandoms people like what they're used to and the fact that they were willing to say you're used to this but we think we can do this other thing very well too was very brave at the time. And even by today's standards, it's not something most shows are willing to do. I guess that kind of leads me to ask, was there anyone you connected with or at the very least, if you didn't like them, you found them compelling or, or you were deeply interested in where their character was going to go just based off the first three episodes of the series. I am a sucker for the goofy sidekick have been my entire life. So I definitely immediately gravitated towards Eli, you know, the, you know, the slacker, but super smart, just not willing to put into the effort kind of a character, which we learn his motivations later on in the series, but he was the funny one. And so immediately that's who I was interested in. That's who I liked. And I was very intrigued by, Greer because you get not spoon fed his backstory but you know there's more to it like he's not just the angry tough guy that's getting thrown in the brig as soon as we show up in this spaceship like there's something to it there's a reason why he's that guy and over the course of season one I've definitely come to want more and more and more of Greer which I was not expecting which is kind of the theme of season one for me was it's always (laughs) This is my traditional response to things. And in SGU, I'm somewhere completely else. Um, But yeah, Eli and Greer were my first two. I kind of wrote off Chloe originally as just, oh, she's the cute one. She's going to be, 
the, you know, the sexy one because she's young and adorable and she's in that little dress. So I kind of rolled my eyes and ignored her. And of course she turns out to, you know, be so much more than what you would expect. And I think too, as much as SGU kind of subverts the established Stargate stuff, they kind of play around with just traditional sci-fi stuff where Johansson and James and Chloe can all be the cute, pretty ones when they want to be, but they also all have very defined personalities apart from each other. And there's no like token sexy girl. There's no, you know, kind of token character of really any traditional sci-fi trope. Everyone's a nice fleshed out. And even if you don't know how they're fleshed out, you can tell that the writers know. And that's always kind of gratifying to see. So kind of wrapping up the air part of the discussion, what what argument does the pilot make for people to stick around? And obviously in your case, you set out to write a column on all the episodes of the show. So it was something you seem to commit to up front. But, but say you were a casual viewer and you watched this pilot. And, you know, after the montage to Alexi Murdoch's Breathe, where does that leave the viewer? Why, why should they stick around? And what would make you want to stick around or maybe even turn the TV off? I think what made me want to stick around you know, now is that it was different. I think exactly what turned a lot of people off on it was what turned me on to it is that, you know, it's familiar, but it's new and it's a, a whole different side of storytelling from as you watch the credits in various episodes, a lot of really familiar names and you know, people tend to forget that the writers behind a TV show or the directors, those people that come back week over week, it's not always the person in front of the screen developing this character for you. There's somebody in front of a computer and people can write more than one type of thing. And so getting to see everyone that you've you know come to appreciate over 14 years, watching them all stretch their wings and kind of pull out the stops and say, let me show you what I can do is definitely the overall vibe I got from the air pilot movie overall. So let's get on to the rest of season 1.0, you know, past air part three um, after the, the, after finding the lime in the desert planet, the struggle for survival doesn't end there. And I think really up to the mid-season premiere, which is Justice, which I'm really excited to get your take on in a minute. But but I think all the episodes before that still really hammers in the desperation of the crew. And, and so I just want to ask you, how did that play for you? And what were some of the highlights from the first half of the season? And what were maybe some of the points where you were starting to question the approach? I definitely liked the approach of, you know, we're not fighting an alien every week. We're not fighting this known tangible enemy every week. The enemy is ultimately death. Like if we don't get what we need, we're all done for. And, you know, in totality, I really like how it very slowly focuses on different characters, depending on which episode you're watching and pushes them forward 
and using the touchstones as a device to get to go back to Earth. And instead of doing like, you know, Lost did with the flashbacks to our previous lives, this is how it happened, getting to see them in real time, for the characters at least, was a really neat device. I did have a little bit of a problem with how many random civilians are we going to let in on this (laughs) insane secret? Um, You know, one or two of them I was kind of okay with. You know, oh, my wife already, you know, has clearance because of this other thing she's working on. That's cool. That's fine. But it's like, Chloe's mom, I think, was probably one of my first ones where I really started questioning, why are we just telling them straight out right? I know I'm in a different body, but I'm really me, and I'm on a spaceship galaxies away. We're kind of screwed, but I really love you. And then these random civilians are turning around and going, I fully accept this bizarre story you're telling me, (laughs) and I'm going to just react as if you truly are my child, my husband, my wife, no one's like running into the streets screaming for help because a mental patient has broken into their house. Interesting you say that. Wait for that moment in season two. <laughs> that is That specific point may very well be addressed. Uh, I, I won't say any more than that. Um, so were there any specific episodes, communication stone-centric or not communication stone-centric, that you really connected with my favorite one and probably one of my top episodes for the entire season is definitely time i loved the the monsters in the dark and the we don't really know what's happening uh something stargate's done well since you know sg1's 1969 is this time travel conundrum of multiple timelines that are happening at the same time but we're only finding out about them from one specific perspective and i thought the tension was brilliant the never getting a full clear view of the monsters made them all the more terrifying and scary and watching i guess our timeline people watching these kino footage deaths of themselves in some places just it really pulled me in and I was just staring at the screen I didn't know what was happening and I kind of felt like I was on the destiny watching these Kino videos going how do we prevent this from happening and turns out we did it multiple times but we you know figured it out the third time we made it work and yeah three times a charm right (laughs) but yeah that one was huge for me that's kind of one of those when I think back on the series or the season I should say that that's a top of the heap sort of episode for me I love I love how seamlessly they can take something that's that confusing and make it totally understandable yeah and it's almost like you grow attached to the second round of characters and then you know spoiler alert obviously watch them all get killed off Uh, And then you don't even see the next round. You just assume that the third or fourth or fifth round got it right. And now we we pick up with those characters in in life, the the next episode. Um, But but specifically, I was thinking about the character's mental state in time. Like, I can't imagine how disturbing it would be to watch your own death on a video screen. But I also it just hit me that like these characters are not in their comfort zone. So not only are they 
did they find recordings of of themselves facing their demise they're they're also strung out on the other side of the universe without any resources they don't they're not in their comfort zone you know they're not operating from stargate command or atlantis they don't have uh, tactical support from the Daedalus or or allies in the universe. I mean, these guys are really out on their own. And when they encounter this foe, this adversary, and then this time loop, I mean, it. I think it's it really makes the audience wonder: Are they going to make it at all? And how are they going to make it out unscathed? And, and again, like that frontier sense of drama is is so it's so brilliantly nailed in this episode. Well, and the the message of death is coming from the Kino, which is a character unto itself. (laughs) But, you know, a couple episodes before in light, when we're worried that, you know, over half this crew is going to die and only 17 of us might maybe make it on the Goldilocks planet if it turns out this one's okay. They're leaving their plan is to leave that Kino just in space as kind of a monument to I was here. This is yeah. a thing that happened. And so it's the Kino is their kind of one thing that this is what's going to maybe make all of this matter. This is the one way we can show that we matter. And then that thing turns around and goes, oh, no, by the way, you all die a horrible, grisly death. So let's go ahead and talk about the mid-season finale, Justice, which is another episode that ha- has plenty of edge-of-your-seat drama and a wicked twist at the end. When I first saw the episode, when it came out a decade ago, um, my head was spinning. I actually remember feeling like a little nauseous because I was so tense um, from the episode and also very upset that I had to wait five months. So I'm I'm highly envious that you can just, you know, <laughs> put in the next DVD and watch space right after it. Uh, but at the time, I I couldn't believe what had happened. And I was totally sucked into the drama in a way I hadn't been even in the previous nine episodes. Yeah, Justice, you know, I'm a sucker for procedural drama. I will watch, like, Law & Order SVU for hours on end, the exact same episodes I've been watching for years. And I I think if that made the final cut, I mentioned in the article that this is kind of Law & Order SGU. um, (laughs) Yeah, that did make the cut. I love it. It's perfect, yeah. (laughs) With, you know immediately off the bat because i watch so many of these procedural shows with spencer dead alone in his room i'm like hmm clearly it's not a suicide it's someone trying to make it look like he died by suicide and i i fell for the trap hook line and sinker and this one i was almost convinced for a little while that young actually had killed him and when it, you know, all came around back to, you know, Rush not quite twirling his mustache, but, you know, thinking that he's smarter than everyone else so he can pull off framing the leader of this accidental mission for murder and that people are going to believe him and that something so simple as hiding the gun in the air vent. Clearly, you know, someone as stupid as Young would have done that because I'm so clever. I can think of these things. It's kind of classic rush but then for young to turn around and maroon him on that planet at the end just absolutely floored me i don't know what i would have done if i had to wait five months to find (laughs) out what happened after that this is the point where i think the show solidified its own identity in a very specific way um it was also something i hadn't seen coming largely because 
a twist that dark with its with two of two uh starring characters has never really happened i think at least not in such a personal and malicious way uh, I don't know if anyone's seen Breaking Bad, but there are some, I think most of America has, so this is an okay reference. Um, towards the end of the final season, no spoilers, but towards the end of the final season, there are some episodes that make you physically ill um, because the drama is so flawlessly executed and not because it's high stakes, but because it's so personal. It, it, it's not so much an act of mass violence or murder as it is two deeply hateful humans letting go on each other. You know, with, with Rush doing something morally reprehensible and framing young and then young one-upping him by stranding him on the planet ostensibly killing him yeah and for it to be it almost seems like the sixth twist in that episode just it was i feel like if i'd been watching it on tv before every commercial break would have been like oh wait now we think young did it and then the next commercial break, it's Rush framed him. So maybe Rush actually killed this guy. And the next yeah. commercial break, it's like, nope, everything you thought in the very first few minutes of the episode was completely right. But oh yeah, now we're going to leave Rush for Dead Sea in five months. Like that's kind of not okay, but okay and great all at the same time. So join us next time on the Gate World podcast to hear Sarah's thoughts about the second half of Stargate Universe's first season, as well as where the explosive two-part season finale leaves the viewer and how it sets up the show's second season. Again, I'm your host, Adam Barnard, and you've been listening to the Gate World podcast. <laughs>